Good afternoon. Hello. Uh, I'm, I'm Christopher Preble. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Um, thanks to all of you for attending, and uh, thanks especially to our conference department who uh, organize all of our events here at Cato. They do an excellent job. Uh, welcome also to those of you watching at uh, Cato.org, where all of our events are broadcast and archived. Um, in my nearly seven and a half years at Cato, I've convened many policy forums and book forums and the like, and they follow a pretty consistent pattern. Um, this is the point where I hold up the book and say a few nice things about the author or authors, talk about how important the book is and why you all should go out and buy it by terrorizing ourselves uh, why U.S. counterterrorism policy is failing and how to fix it. Okay, so go out and buy the book. Now, today I am in a slightly awkward position uh, given that I am one of the co-editors of the book. Um, but that won't stop me from saying what a terrific book it is and you should go out and buy it. Um, now, I can say that with only, a, uh, I hope, a slight degree of self-promotion because uh, my real purpose today is to shower praise on my co-editors, Benjamin Friedman and Jim Harper, because uh, uh, they deserve most of the credit and most of the praise. So, so there's how I get myself off of this awkward position. Um, it's not merely self-serving, however. It's true. Um, ben and Jim... Um, when we first started this project uh, three years ago, um, ben, ben was just becoming uh, affiliated with Cato. Uh, Jim and I had, had worked only very briefly together. Uh, over the last three years, I've really come to appreciate uh, uh, their, their courage in tackling a difficult subject, their, um, their insights. They bring uh, new perspectives to a problem that we've been uh, dealing with for a very, very long time, and frankly, their intellect and their skill in conveying these unique uh, solutions to this problem of terrorism. It really has been a terrific privilege to work with them. It's also been a privilege to work with the other contributors and writers who worked on this project. Uh, a few of them are here with us today. Uh, Mia Bloom from Penn State University. Uh, John Mueller. John, where are you? I saw John's in the back there. Uh, are a few of the um, contributors to this volume. Um, I'll just say just a few words about the project itself. This, this volume is part of a three-year project sponsored by the Atlantic Philanthropies with some additional support from the Open Society Institute. Um, and I, I do want to thank both institutions for this book. This book is something of a culmination of this project. Um, and the initiative, the Strategic Counterterrorism Initiative, it has a goal to inform uh, responses to terrorism, to the problem of terrorism, according to you know, the well-established norms of a free society, the things that we deal with uh, on a regular basis here at the Cato Institute. But there are specific uh, approaches to dealing with counterterrorism that are emphasized uh, throughout this project and in this book. It talks about the importance of accurate, timely information, uh, effective civil defense, focused police work, intelligence work to disrupt terror cells. Uh, the book and the project document the many ways in which a climate of fear-mongering can exacerbate the threat of terrorism, hence the title. Um, and, you know, we argue for uh, prudent policies arrived at through careful deliberation. In one of our earlier um, events back in January, we talked about having an adult conversation about terrorism, and I think this book does that. Um, let me introduce, in the order they'll speak, uh, Jim and Ben, and then after they speak, I'm going to introduce our commentator, uh, Rick Ozzie Nelson. Uh, Jim Harper is the director of 
information policy studies here at Cato. Uh, he focuses on the difficult problems of adapting law and policy to the unique problems of the information age. He is a member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. His work has been cited by USA Today, the Associated, Associated Press, and Reuters. He's appeared on many different television and radio networks, Fox News, CBS, MSNBC. His scholarly articles have been appeared in the Administrative Law Review, the Minnesota Law Review, the Hastings Constitutional Law Quarterly. Uh, he also wrote a book which I um, uh, spoke about several years ago, Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood, which was really a joy to read. He's the editor of privacilla.org, a web-based think tank devoted exclusively to privacy, and he maintains an online federal spending resource, WashingtonWatch.com. He holds a JD from UC Hastings College of Law. Uh, our second speaker today is my colleague, Ben Friedman. Ben is a research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies here at Cato. In addition to his work on counterterrorism and homeland security, Ben is an expert on defense politics, defense budgets, and U.S. grand strategy. His particular research interests focus on threat perception and threat inflation. He is co-editor of U.S. military intervention innovation since the Cold War, creation without destruction, and has contributed chapters in several uh, books, including American Foreign Policy and the Politics of Fear, Threat Inflation Since 9-11, and The Use of Force, Military Power and International Politics, 7th Edition. His work has also appeared in Foreign Policy, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Baltimore Sun, WashingtonPost.com, Defense News, and several other newspapers and journals. He's a graduate of Dartmouth College uh, and a Ph.D. candidate in political science and an affiliate of the Security Studies Program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Jim? <clears throat> Thank you, Chris, and welcome to all of you. I suppose it's fair to say that I'm shameless compared to my colleague, Chris Preble. Uh, actually, the DHS Privacy Committee will be, will be meeting tomorrow, and I've been conniving ways to uh, uh, hand a copy of this book to Janet Napolitano, who I understand will come and speak to us uh, in, a, in a, photo, a photo, uh, photogenic way, although how I would appear in the frame at the, at the same time that it's photogenic, I don't know. Um, it has been a real pleasure working with Chris and working with Ben on this book and working with all the contributors. I've been, been uh, so benefited by the work of everybody, not just the authors, but everybody who's participated in our now um, three conferences, two of them public, with, with many different terrorism experts. And it's been a real value to, to me, and it's something that I think is very important to share with all of you and for you to share with all the people that you interact with. It's, it's very important that we use this book as an opportunity to educate our colleagues uh, and, and the, the influential people, uh, especially here in Washington, D.C., about terrorism, about how it works and about how we should respond to it. We did start this process with a meeting in uh, Chicago in the fall of 2008 where we convened a, l a large group of terrorism experts, uh, a second conference, a public conference in the week before the inauguration of the new president, brought together 30-plus experts on, on terrorism and counterterrorism. And in January, we got together again, as, as Chris said, to, to talk some about having an adult conversation about terrorism, which I still think we, we really haven't had. Um, but I do think that Cato, and I'm proud of Cato for having something of a role in convening experts from such a variety of fields, giving them a sense perhaps that they're part of an intellectual 
movement, an intellectual substrate for a, a new counterterrorism in our country, something that we very urgently need to get going with because um, the costs of the old counterterrorism uh, continue to accrue. At our first meeting and since then, I've worked on, on what you might call a, a, an easy digestible theory of terrorism. There's so much complexity to it and so much better knowledge than mine. But I try to, I've tried to put together something that can be useful, that's, that's easy to, to understand and easy to pass along. That's the simple idea that terrorism works by eliciting overreaction on the part of target states, on the, on the part of victims. Terror attacks don't really have as a goal uh, capturing soil. They don't even have a goal uh, of killing people, though that certainly helps. The goal primarily is to catalyze some kind of response on the part of, of the victim. In the book, the first chapter, we have Audrey Kurth Cronin, who does a good job, I think, a very good job, of articulating the different interweaving and, and overlapping um, strategies that, that terrorists seek to, uh, to achieve uh, through terrorist acts. Now, I've tried to, to categorize the forms that overreaction can take in a way that, that might be easy to understand, easy to pass along. One, and, and probably the most easy to, rec to recognize, is the waste of blood and treasure. When a country goes to war in the aftermath of a terrorist attack, when it overspends on security measures that don't have commensurate security gains, these things drain the blood and treasure of the country. They raise the cost of, of the policies that the geopolitically oriented terrorists may be, may be fighting against. And a country like ours makes ourselves worse off by, by wasting blood and treasure. Credit is due for, for this thinking to Robert Pape from the University of Chicago, who participated with us, though he doesn't appear in, our, in this volume. Uh, and, and he thinks very, very much about the strategic logic of terrorism, which has some, some influence on what terrorists do. Uh, a, second, a second form, a second product of overreaction is driving support to terrorists and recruits to terrorist groups. Um, Terrorism is often meant to influence people who are nearby to terrorists. And I mean nearby in two senses. One is physically nearby. They're neighbors. Uh, they're the people in their villages or in their countries. If they're struck by stray bullets, if they hear about stray bombs striking neighbors, sympathetic characters, um, they may be on the fence. They may be even opposed terrorists. But after they learn about these things, about various harms and atrocities that the West or the U.S. may, may commit, in counter-terrorist actions, they may be driven to support terrorists or to withdraw opposition to terrorists. Uh, likewise, by nearby, I mean ideologically nearby. Individuals who, who are on the fence about whether they might participate in terrorism might be driven over the fence toward terrorists by things that they see in overreaction to terrorism. It's, it's, it may be obvious for a sophisticated group like this to say, but the battlefield is not a piece of land. The battlefield is mind space. It's ideology. And good behavior is good counterterrorism. It's a, it's a lesson we can't repeat enough times because bad behavior is so damaging to our country's efforts. And I'm heartened to see in, in some news reports that the, that the U.S. government is taking care to do, uh, to do the very difficult work of, of prosecuting military efforts around the world without doing the bad behavior part of things. I mentioned ideology, and, and overreaction plays into the ideological battle itself, in, in particular the ideological narrative that terrorists tell themselves that they use to, to uh, um, bring themselves together and motivate themselves as a group. 
Max Abrams, who's another participant with us, uh, but but uh, but uh, very and very influential in my thinking, but not not in this volume. Uh, writes very interesting stuff about how terrorists may not be motivated by the geopolitical goals that we have ascribed to them so often, but actually have social cohesion in mind. That is, they're they're much more like gang members than geopolitical strategists. And realizing that, uh, we have to take away the story that they tell themselves, where they may be uh, romanticizing their own lives as, as taking part in some struggle that is bigger than themselves, giving them their lives some meaning. It was very interesting to me uh, to, to note the Newsweek report about the fact that the uh, failed Times Square bomber may have originally wanted to fight in Afghanistan. That signals that, uh, having failed to make good in the United States, uh, he wanted to be a brother in arms. He physically wanted to be shoulder to shoulder with opponents to the United States. Now he was used for other purposes. And, and that's, that confirms, in my mind, Max Abrams' thesis about the fact that gang membership is as much a, uh, a motivation of terrorists. Obviously, when, when U.S. leaders and U.S. officials accept the declaration of war uh, put forward by an Osama bin Laden uh, as, as valid somehow, that drives these people who are motivated by gang membership toward Osama bin Laden. Opponents of the United States, of U.S. power, without some direction really don't do much, really can't do much. They can't organize themselves very well. They don't tend to be winners. But if we signal them by saying Osama bin Laden is our number one enemy, we do Osama bin Laden a favor, we do them a favor. And we should obviously withdraw favors like that and withdraw from from giving them ideological favors. So how do we get away from the current default of overreaction to terrorism? overreaction which harms our interests in so many ways. I don't think it'll be easy, obviously. It hasn't been easy to to, uh, put together the ideas in this book, as important as they are. But one thing I think that's particularly important in the book is the the pair of chapters we have on communication. Uh, We have to be highly disciplined as a society in our response to terrorism in order to respond well. And communication about terrorism is a big part of that. We can make terrorism boring, and unprofitable if we just withdraw power from it. And I think the way that opinion leaders and politicians and media communicate about terrorism will play a big part in withdrawing power from that strategy. Obviously, we have a competitive media that makes money by hyping threats. We have uh, political parties that in varying degrees uh, try try to gain political advantage by hyping threats. Who can state the cause for fear more provocatively? Who has the bigger, louder counterterrorism plan? These things aren't aren't necessarily helpful. Uh, Ambassador Robert Hutchings, who spoke here in January 2009, talked about a, a crucial error at a, at, a, at a very important time when the president chose, I suppose, the path of least resistance, using messages about fear and anger rather than talking about the indomitability of the United States and its people in a Reagan-esque sort of way. We started on a path uh, uh, down a road that we're, we're still on uh, because of some unfortunate, uh, in retrospect, choices about how we dealt with this problem as a, as a problem to fear uh, and rather than a problem to conquer in our, in our great American way. We, we still suffer today from what I call terror politics. Terror politics is the set of behaviors that are produced when terrorism interacts with the set of incentives that politicians have that are described by public choice economics. 
Uh, they tend to believe that, that hyping threats is to their political advantages, advantage because providing the solutions will be to their political advantage. And that's a problem we still have, haven't unpacked. But I'll call out two chapters. I favor them because I was uh, the editor on, on them. But all, all, all the chapters were good. Um, Priscilla Lewis of U.S. in the World and, and Bill Burns from Decision Research, both, both were very interesting chapters, I think, that go into communications and messaging that will change the society's response collectively to terrorism. Uh, in, in thumbnail, basically Americans want to know more and they want to have a hand in securing the country. That's very different from the approach we have now where Americans are generally kept out of the loop and generally not told how they can be a part of the security solution. Rather, it's a mano-a-mano fight that, that only the experts in Washington will do. There are ways to talk about terrorism that leaders should adopt that will reassure the public by giving them more information and more of a hand in things. As, as Chris mentioned, we talked uh, in this January about having an adult conversation. I think the Obama administration deserves some credit for... Uh, what might be called a less bad handling of terrorism <laughs> since uh, the, the, compared to the, its predecessor. But it has been reactive to events. Uh, unfortunately, we have had events that it's been required to react to. And it's been reactive, I think, because it hasn't gotten ahead of this, rather perhaps by focusing on, on uh, domestic priorities that aren't really the responsibility of the federal government. Um, a simple way that, uh, that I use to think about counterterrorism is to categorize any proposed response, any, any proposed, that is, action in, in the wake of, of a terrorist event or attack, categorize it as whether it's reaction or response. Reactions are going to be the policies that first pop into people's heads, policymakers, pundits, and they'll tend toward retribution, toward sharp reaction, toward... toward uh, uh, Anything, all these things that play into the into the terrorism strategy, as I've described. Responses, on the other hand, as opposed to reactions, responses will be the policies that 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 exhibit having having been the product of a second thought. Uh, responses generally won't satisfy our baser instincts. They won't be interesting to the media the way reactions are. They put politicians at risk of terror politics from from their political opponents. But I think these cool, phlegmatic responses are the things that will deny energy to terrorism and make it much less attractive as a strategy. We need to get started on those, those things right away, and we all need to be thinking about these things and communicating as far and wide as we can about the difference between reaction to terrorism, which gives it strength, and response, which weakens it. Interestingly, as I thought about our book and all the excellent, excellent material that's in it, I did think about the, the, the many participants with us who, who aren't in the book. Uh, and this is really because the, the book is a, something of a trellis. It has, it has pieces. It has the framework on which so many others already and, and in, in the years to come are going to continue to weave further thinking into. Uh, it is an outline. It's a way for people to get a handle on the new counterterrorism, which I hope that the country will adopt. Uh, thinking from all kinds of different quarters, uh, from strategy to understanding terrorists and terrorist motivations uh, to disciplined domestic security, disciplined international relations, and communication, on and on and on. All these things will have to come together in a new counterterrorism, but hopefully it will be much more productive, uh, ensuring our safety and our security and our liberty and our wealth all at the same time while making us a happy and confident people like we so intend to be.
Thank you for hearing my thoughts. I'll look forward to Ben Friedman's, the commentary, and then questions from all of you. Thanks again. All right. Um, well, I, I also want to uh, thank everybody for coming out, uh, and I, I want to thank our, our, our sponsors and uh, my co-authors and the contributors to the book. Uh, among the contributors, I, I'm particularly pleased that uh, John Mueller's here, who uh, contributed uh, two chapters to the book, which is more than anybody else. Uh, I want to single John out and embarrass him a little bit uh, because, uh, you know, this book is to me sort of part of a larger project uh, about – uh, the way the country has reacted to terrorism that, that John sort of accidentally uh, led by virtue of his book, Overblown, and a lot of other writing. Uh, you know, whereas uh, Jim uh, mentioned, we're, we're trying to sort of uh, dial back some of the panicky uh, talk about terrorism and rampant threat inflation and, and have a, uh, a more rational and calm conversation. And that uh, is an ongoing process. I think that will be uh, successful uh, at least uh, as long as there aren't any other uh, terrible attacks, which I think would be um, harmful in that regard. But, uh, you know, people are always calling John a contrarian, and, and they mean it uh, as a compliment. Uh, contrarians are people who uh, often disagree with the majority, uh, and that's, I think, a very useful thing in a democracy, uh, plus being contrary takes some cojones. Um, but, but John, I would say, is not exactly that, is not exactly a contrarian. I think he's instead a guy who's made a habit about being right about things that a lot of people have been wrong about. Uh, the coming end of the Cold War, the decline of wars between major powers, the war in Iraq, and terrorism. I think that uh, takes cojones and insight. And, uh, you know, I, for example, I remember uh, a year or two ago, John was on the radio, on public radio, I think, talking about the war in Afghanistan. And he said there that, you know, the, the terrorists there aren't enough of a threat to justify the continuation of the war. And on the show also was someone from the Center for New American Security who uh, said later, you know, uh, you know, Mueller, uh, his view was so far outside the mainstream uh, that it was, I don't even know why they put him on the radio. And, and this is why policymakers hate academics, because they just say this crazy useless stuff that comes out of left field and doesn't contribute uh, to useful solutions. And, you know, the guy didn't even say uh, uh, on his, in his blog post whether he thought what Mueller said was true. He didn't even bother. Uh, and, you know, I, I was – that made me really angry. I was going to write a, a response on the Cato blog, but I figured I was just too angry and it would come off bitter because, you know, it's the very fact that no one will say these things that makes them so valuable. Um, that's the sort of awkward truth that academia has to offer government. I'm a big fan of the late great uh, political scientist Hans Morgenthau. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, really, if political science is doing its job, it's there to tell people in power things they don't want to hear. Uh, if it's relevant, it ought to be reviled and attacked. And, uh, you know, that can mean just saying what ambitious people in Washington may know but are afraid to say, which is the emperor has no clothes model, uh, which is different than the sort of better mousetrap operational model that's dominant in this town, uh, where you look at the stark naked emperor and you say something like, turn up the heat, boss, your clothes are kind of light. Um, <laughs> And then academics, of course, say things uh, that people haven't thought of or explain puzzling things. I think uh, John uh, does both of those things. And I, I think we're to flatter ourselves a little bit. That's what we were aiming for in this book, to do a little bit of both. Um, first, we're, we're on the first uh, effort. We're trying to point out that terrorists are overrated in our political rhetoric and that most of the damage from terrorism comes from our reaction to it. Um, you know, I should add that not all our contributors uh, agree with that point. Uh, some of them uh, would want to dissent. But that is, as Chris said, what, what the title means. Uh, we, we say uh, counterterrorism policy is failing, and, and we mean uh, that we're doing more damage to ourselves than the terrorists potentially could. Um, 
there are lots of examples of this, large and small. I'll just give a couple. Uh, you take a small one like the new requirement that people entering the United States from Canada have to show a passport. Uh, I think that's likely to create harms in, in the form of impeded trade and tourism that badly outweigh the, the counterterrorism benefit. Um, uh, even using fairly dire uh, estimates of damage. There's likewise considerable evidence, I would say, that the post-9-11 changes in immigration policy in this country have kept out a, a large number of well-educated folks, uh, some of whom would come uh, and, and uh, participate in research at U.S. universities, some of whom would be entrepreneurs that started companies that employed lots of people, and we've paid a very large opportunity cost uh, for, these, for these immigration policies that have no obvious benefit, although I will admit that the, the benefit is rather uh, opaque and hard to estimate. Now, the, the analysis required to make this sort of judgment, which is cost-benefit analysis, is always controversial uh, because there's uncertainty about costs and benefits uh, and because comparing economic and security goods requires estimates of the value of human lives. And so people tend to avoid performing this analysis. Uh, but we implicitly make these form of judgments whenever these judgments, whenever we uh, make security policy, uh, and so I think sensible policies ought to do so explicitly. We ought to be more explicit uh, about the choices and the trade-offs that we're making. We ought to build those sorts of uh, those sorts of trade-offs into into the Department of Homeland Security and other parts of the, parts of the government. Even if it gets ignored, that sort of analysis can empower the people uh, who are at, at the moment losing the policy debate. And then there are other examples, uh, you know, where uh, counterterrorism policy is counterproductive even in terms of terrorism. Uh, you know, for example, in the chapter uh, that Milton Lightberg wrote for this book, which is about uh, the threat of biological terrorism uh, and the inflation of that threat, um, you know, he points out or suggests that the, the biodefense complex that we've uh, vastly expanded in this country since October 2001 when those anthrax occur, attacks occurred, um, has heightened the, th the threat of, uh, of bioterrorism because it's spread expertise and dangerous materials into lots of hands where they otherwise wouldn't have been. And then, of course, there are the two ongoing wars, uh, which are discussed in uh, Paul Pilar and Chris Preble's chapter on the use of military force in counterterrorism, and this idea that drives them that, that coercive occupations of states where terrorists occupy, uh, where ter terrorists operate, is a good way to free ourselves from their menace. Uh, and, you know, that's an idea that, that's sort of central to U.S. national security strategy right now, but it flies in the face of most of the political science uh, that, that has touched on the subject. Um, so that's the first big thing we're trying to do here. We're trying to just sort of uh, put something else into the discussion. The second thing we're trying to do is contribute to what we know about where terrorism comes from, uh, how we can fight it effectively, uh, uh, why we tend to overreact to it, and how to control the urge to do so. Uh, for example, Mia Bloom's chapter uh, summarizes and presents new evidence about the relationship between poverty and terrorism, which is very important because our president uh, likes to talk about uh, poverty or, as he used to say, hopelessness being a cause of, of terrorism. Uh, and that's an empirical claim that ought to be evaluated, and she evaluates it. Um, Audrey Cronin, as, as uh, was mentioned, uh, has a chapter that's a synopsis of her book about how past terrorist movements have died or been killed off. Uh, and then there's the two chapters about risk communication that Jim mentioned. My chapter looks at the political incentives to exaggerate terrorism and how we can change them. Um, now, I, I should say that I'm, I'm very wary of uh, being called naive. It, it's not my view that, that uh, the main reason we have bad policies in this country uh, on this issue or any other is the dearth of rationality or insight about them. Uh, I don't think that's how politics works. 
uh, I think, you know, the trouble with our agricultural policies is not that the policymakers on the relevant congressional committees are unaware of arguments against subsidies. Um, the problem with our drug policies is not that no one did a study showing that locking up a bunch of small-time crack smokers or crack dealers is not an effective way to advance our objectives. Um, likewise, uh, the security policies we're complaining about in this book are not going to change because people in power read this book and say, Eureka, I've had it wrong all along. Um, our government overreacts to terrorism for sound bureaucratic and electoral reasons, and it will continue to do so, I think, as long as those bureaucratic and electoral reasons exist. But I don't think that means that our efforts here are utterly wasted. Um, one reason, I think, is that, that people, especially those that sit in fancy offices uh, in this town, are, are social creatures. And I, I think sometimes hearing something that you think articulated by your friends or a smart person in public or in a nice-looking book um, makes you feel like it's okay to say it too. And, uh, and I think that matters a lot when the person being uh, thus uh, intellectually liberated is an opinion leader who can convince the public of new things and change the politics a little bit. Uh, and I think that's how conventional wisdom generally changes by degrees. And I think you see this in drug policy. You know, it's, it's no longer just burnt out hippies in Peter Tosh t-shirts saying, uh, you know, marijuana prohibition is not a great idea. It's become a mainstream idea, and I think it's happened by degrees. Um, so that, that's one thing, as I said, that we're trying to do here. We're, we're trying to push some understated but sound ideas into the mainstream. And, uh, I, you know, I think it's working. I, I, it's been my experience uh, that six years ago or whatever, it was more, uh, it seemed to me more risque to say that most Americans worry too much about terrorism uh, uh, or al-Qaeda and that we tend to overreact to it. Now I'm starting to find uh, giving this speech a little bit boring. And uh, I feel a little convention when I, conventional when I say it. And uh, maybe some of you uh, have the same reaction. Uh, and, and if so, that's, that's progress. Uh, you know, word is spreading. If it's getting boring, we're doing something right. Um, finally, I, I think another reason uh, uh, this book uh, could have some actual effect is events. The, uh, you know, I think conventional wisdom and uh, what is politically safe changes more rapidly uh, when events undercut it. And, uh, you know, we that espouse the views, some of the views expressed here, the ones I've been mentioning, uh, have been aided by events, by the failure of al-Qaeda to live up to its hype, uh, and uh, by, the, by the sale of the war in Iraq, I think, which, which discredited uh, the method of counterterrorism as articulated by the Bush administration. And more generally, although it's a terrible, tragic way to learn, I think the wars that we're fighting in the United States now in Iraq and Afghanistan are making more people question the militarized uh, approach to counterterrorism that's been dominant in this country since 9-11. And uh, I think that, that creates more intellectual room for alternative ideas about uh, how to go ahead with counterterrorism like some of those contained here. So with that, I'll, I'll turn over the mic and uh, I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Jim and Ben. Um, we're now fortunate to be joined by uh, Rick Ozzie Nelson. He's the director of the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Program and a senior fellow in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Rick uh, joined CSIS in September 2009 after retiring from a 20-year career in the U.S. Navy. Rick is a helicopter pilot. He uh, trained in the SH-60B Seahawk and the SH-2F Sea Sprite helicopters. Some of you know I was a, in the Navy, and I've seen these things land on a very, very tiny boat. So this is a – you think the carriers are sexy. I mean, this is, it, you know, this is really, really small. Big, big ocean, really small landing area. Um, his career also, however, included assignments at the National Security Council and the National Counterterrorism Center. 
where he served in the Directorate of Strategic Operational Planning. Uh, prior to his assignment at NCTC, uh, Rick served as Associate Director for Mar Maritime Security in the Office of Combating Terrorism on the National Security Council. He also earned an appointment uh, as counterterrorism team leader in Deep Blue. That's the Navy's operational think tank that was created after September 11th. Um, on a personal note, Rick uh, graduated uh, along with another great American from the uh, George Washington University class of 1989. He holds an MA in National Security Studies from the <coughs> other institution here in DC, Georgetown University, where he now teaches courses on homeland security and counterterrorism as an adjunct lecturer. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, Chris, I, I appreciate that. Um, and it's, uh, it's a pleasure to, to, to be here today. Um, so I'm the only non-Cato member of the, uh, the, tank, the tank here, so this is where I'm supposed to come in and tell you why the book is right, or I can tell you why the book is wrong. But uh, no, I am here because um, Chris gave me an advanced copy, and um, I read the book. And um, I, I, will <laughs> and I will tell you, um, it, you know, I, did, I spent the last 10 years of my career doing counterterrorism. Um, and focused on this, both at the policy level, tactical, and operational levels. And um, through a strange twist of a fate, that's how my career went from helicopter pilot to uh, CT expert. I will tell you, when I read this book, you know, my first reaction was, I wish we had this book nine years ago, um, because there are a lot of things, in fact, that I am in complete agreement with in this book. And it's very difficult in government to change policies, as folks pointed out, um, but it's important that we continue to have these debates and these discussions, because that's one of the issues that's currently missing, uh, continues to be missing, is, is to, to, to drive this point home, is a honest and forthright dialogue about our counterterrorism policies, and, you know, specifically in our national security policy uh, writ large. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, give you some background from my perspective, from my time in the counterterrorism community, and tell you um, why I think the, the book has hit a, a lot of appropriate remarks and a lot of appropriate um, uh, ideas. So the 10th anniversary of September 11th is a year away, a little over a year away. I think a lot of folks, we forget it's been, it's been that long. Um, Ten years in, in American history is not a lot of time. It's a, lot, it's a long period of time. So after September 11th, uh, happened, um, we began to immediately hunt for Osama bin Laden and Amman Zawahiri, both of who we knew existed. In fact, we had a whole agency, a department at the agency stood up to track these individuals. It was no surprise, the attack was, but the fact that this individual was willing to kill Americans, uh, he had been doing so for 10 years. Um, in fact, you can trace, uh, they argue about how far you can trace his attacks back with some all the way back to Somalia, if not prior to that. So in the heat of the fight against al-Qaeda, when we were tracking them down with everything that we had um, in 2001 and early 2002, we had about 10,000 military soldiers in Afghanistan. Um, today, we have, we're going to inch towards well over 100,000, um, and we still have troops in Iraq. So our counterterrorism policy from going from let's hunt down Osama bin Laden and the perpetrator of the 9-11 attacks to getting him and bringing this event to an end and dismantling the network has evolved somehow into what we currently have in Iraq and Afghanistan and also the creation of two departments, which I'll talk about. So we go into track Osama bin Laden and Amman Zawahiri. In 2003, we, what I call the beginning of the end of any chance for victory in Afghanistan was when we ended up invading Iraq. 
um, which somehow was tied to a counterterrorism war. Now, I'm a counterterrorism specialist, so in truth in advertising, I look through everything through a counterterrorism lens. I'm not going to judge whether the Iraq war was right or whether it was wrong. My point is specifically is that judging is undertaking that war under the auspices of counterterrorism was flawed, and it detracted from our ability to finish what we should have finished in Afghanistan, which was defeating the al-Qaeda network or the remnants of it. Since that time, we've spent, uh, talk about overreaction, uh, $900 billion in Iraq, $300 billion in Afghanistan, and the perpetrators of 9-11, Amman al-Zahiri and Assad bin Laden, are still at large. Now, if I had asked each one of you, I'll go on a limb here, if I had asked each one of you in November of 2001 that nine years later those two individuals would still be at large, you probably would have all scoffed at me and told me I was, you know, you know, it did not have come out to my senses. But here they are. They're still at lot. I consider this still, to this day, one of the largest failures of U.S. foreign policy is our inability to bring those two individuals to justice. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about this uh, leadership issue uh, in the book that they talk about the assassinations are going after targets. And I'll, I'm going to mention this is one of the small areas in the book where Chris and I talked earlier where I disagree is the importance of leadership in this case. So where are we today? Um, Al-Qaeda is, Al-Qaeda core is on the run. The organization is dismantled, um, Al-Qaeda core. Um, but Al-Qaeda core, what's left of it, is not in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda core is in Pakistan, the remnants. So our goals in Afghanistan are to disrupt, dismantle, and defeat al-Qaeda. Um, but we have a significant troop presence in Afghanistan, and we continue to struggle with our policies in Pakistan. And our mission now in Afghanistan, while it ultimately is to disrupt, defeat, and dismantle al-Qaeda, is now under the larger auspices of a counterinsurgency campaign. And this goes, and I'm going to talk about how this is hurting us and, and, and resonates exactly what the book said. So we are at a critical point, I think, in this war against terrorism, which is not a war against terrorism, because we have to remember that uh, counterterrorism, for many years, we successfully, to a large degree, fought terrorists using law enforcement construct, and we're very successful doing that. But we are at a very a critical point in our war against al-Qaeda. What has happened, because of our failures of policies and our failures to, to defeat al-Qaeda core early on, uh, and our actions in Iraq and Afghanistan, and this is, this is very well articulated in the book, we have now created almost a self-sustaining ideology where al-Qaeda, um, uh, using the leadership of Osama bin Laden, is now um, actually doesn't need its leadership necessarily to survive. Now, my position has always been, do I think that defeating, to, eliminating Osama bin Laden and Man al-Zahiri would bring about the end of al-Qaeda? No, I don't believe that that will, but I don't believe you can bring the end of al-Qaeda core without their defeat. They continue to serve as a beacon for that you can stand up to the United States and you can defeat the United States. Um, look, here we are. They still haven't been able to capture us. Um, and, I, and I find that very problematic. So while we're continuing, while these two individuals are still at large, while we have been successful to some degree against going al-Qaeda al al core, we now, through our actions, through our overreaction, we have now begun to create more terrorists and newer terrorists. Which leads me to the next point of radicalization, domestic radicalization, which has been in the media very much so uh, recently. And I go to, I really, uh, Mia Bloom's article and section of the book really resonated with me because a lot of folks say it is about, let's, let's stereotype these individuals. And we look at the domestic cases of domestic radicalization in the United States of recent, and you know which cases they are, the Northern Virginia Five, the Minnesota Somalis, um, Hassan, you could name, you know, whether you call them terrorists or not, but they're all kind of grouped together in the media, so we'll address them as such. Um, 
we try to find commonalities because so far, so different. We want to find those commonalities, but really there are no commonalities. They were all recruited by different groups. They were all recruited by. They had different socioeconomic backgrounds. In fact, the Muslim community is better and more well in it, better integrated than most other communities in the United States, and better off. Um, but where there, where there are two commonalities that we did find, there were no socioeconomics. The first commonality we found is that they were somehow influenced by an intermediary overseas, an Awar al-Awlaki or um, even Osama bin Laden. But most importantly, they all bought into the narrative that the U.S. and the West is at war with Islam. I say that quite frequently, and I get a lot of criticism and pushback for that being a flawed assumption, and it's just a narrative. But it's true. These individuals, the websites, the, the pictures of the violence, that, uh, that, that, that some of these radical elements – Again, there's nothing wrong with radical. This is Cato, right? Radical, <laughs> ra- radical elements. Nothing about radical. The American Revolution was radical, but it's a turning of radical, action, radical thought into violent action. And so what happens is these individuals that are prone to radicalization, they get it further fueled, and they buy into this narrative that the U.S. is at war, uh, and West is at war with Islam. And how can they not um, buy into that? Because Osama bin Laden, remember, one of his original reasons for being at war was to get the Americans in the West out of the Muslim lands. Do we have more or fewer or greater numbers of Westerners in Muslim lands today than we had before September 11th? Um, We have more in there. So this feeds into it. Plus, warfare is a very dangerous thing. I mean, people get killed. Mistakes happen. Civilians are casualties, are part of warfare. To say that we can eliminate all civilian casualties isn't, uh, isn't reasonable. We can try our very, very best. So we set ourselves up for um, ultimate failure because every time there's a civilian casualty in Afghanistan or Iraq, these individuals that buy into this, this toxic narrative, the ones that allows al-Qaeda to be sustaining, is, um, is being generated by our presence and our continued um, um, uh, ramping up of activities in places such as, such as Afghanistan. And that's where I find it very concerning. Um, the last, I'll just finish up with a couple more points. So how do we defeat this? And I think the book does a very good job of pointing this out. One of the things that, you know, that, I, that, I, la- I, that I laugh about, I laugh about as a DOD person, is immediately following 9-11, one of the things that we tried to do over in the Department of Defense is immediately al-Qaeda went from a small group of individuals who were perpetrating attacks to this large global organization. And the first thing we did was we put it on a map. Um, and it was a caliphate. And the first thing we had to do was draw the caliphate. And then we had to build an army. So then we started putting individuals throughout the, um, the country. And then there was al-Qaeda in Indonesia and there was al-Qaeda here. Now, I, I, I joke a little bit about that because um, we overplayed it. We overstated it. But this is not – but let me be very specific. There are still linkages. And I do believe that there are some organizations that al-Qaeda cooperates with. But these individuals are regionally based groups that, again, use al-Qaeda's narrative to further their agenda. It's not al-Qaeda going out and necessarily creating these groups, although al-Qaeda will go ahead and exploit certain areas. So how do we defeat this? As the book says, um, let's not overreach. Let's not overreach legally. One of the things that I found so distressing um, in the last 10 years is some of the issues that are so critically important to us as a nation, some of the issues that make us so uh, different as Americans, specifically our civil liberties and civil rights, became under attack and assaulted because of what we felt we needed to do to bring this threat of terrorism to, 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 to bay. And what happened as a result of that, just as our presence in some of these Muslim lands in Afghanistan and whatnot, it fed it further. Guantanamo Bay. 
the renditions. All of these things have been purported in the press. Again, whether you agree with them or not, the fact of the matter is many individuals use these to justify their additional violent actions against the United States. Um, but you can't have this dialogue in the United States today. If you say you're going to do a law enforcement approach, if you say you're going to leverage some of your international partners' capabilities to do this, you're now all of a sudden being considered weak on terrorism. Um, and we do our country a disservice, and the book says it very clearly, by not having a, an adult conversation on this topic. Does that mean we do exclusively law enforcement? I don't know the answer, but I know that we have to have discussion about it, and I know that we have to have not a polarized issue where we can't come to agreement that one or the other is only acceptable. The issue the, on the blast book, they talk about communication. Communication is the key, and it's communication not just to our people, because remember, Americans want to react. We want to participate. We want to have, you know, we want to be involved. By having the counterterrorism uh, and having our approach to terrorism as being, um, uh, we, we'll handle it. I'm not going to tell you anything. I'm not going to share anything with you, especially when our law enforcement partners and our, and our citizens inside the United States, because, again, to be successful against this domestic extremism threat, we have to have strong ish, uh, relationships with our state and local governments. We don't need to build an army. We have an army of police uh, that's strong. We just need to equip them with the appropriate information. So we have to, we have to equip the people with the information that they need. You know, um, how do they try to react to a terrorist uh, incident? Remain calm, carry on like the British did. Or perhaps how to report suspicious information um, and equip them with the information. And then we also have to communicate to our allies overseas, and we also have to communicate to our enemy that you are just a bunch of murderous thugs and criminals who are not part of some larger army. We're not going to validate you. We're not going to let some disenfranchised individual who's, who's upset that he doesn't have a job or whatever the case may be elevate his status by joining an army of jihad. Let's not give them that, as the book points out. Let's downplay it, treat them as murderous thugs that they are, um, and communicate to them that al-Qaeda, 85% of al-Qaeda's casualties have been other Muslims, not Americans. We need to bring that rhetoric. That communication is so critical. So, again, I'll just go ahead and conclude that, um, you know, again, this, um, this idea that, you know, when John Brennan gets up forward and says that we have, a, you know, 100 percent, we can't have 100 percent success rate against terrorism. As soon as he said that, what happened? He was because called for his resignation. <laughs> we can't do that. Secretary Napolitano and DHS releases a report and says there's a possibility that some military folks uh, coming back from overseas might be uh, subjected to or might be uh, uh, possibly radicalized, and they have specific training. I'm a military person. We do have specific training, and the effects of PTSD are very, very uh, significant. Does that mean that all American military reasons are, are going to be domestic extremism? No, it doesn't. But the point is we can't have a dialogue about this. We can't have a dialogue about this if we're not going to talk about these threats that are facing America, if we're not going to talk about the fact that we can't guarantee 100 percent security we, we have to be able to have the dialogue and that's one of the things i found so um uh, uh good about the book so i just wanted to encapsulate some of these things and show you from my perspective of how i view the war on terrorism based on my years the last 10 years actually operating on this and how some of my themes and how i saw it are completely captured 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 in the book uh, i think i'll close with that chris and turn it back over to, to you thank you Thank you, Rick. Thanks again to Jim and Ben. Um, we uh, have uh, a good amount of time for questions and answers. Uh, 
here at the Cato Institute, we have uh, the, the, the Jeopardy rule. That is, when you ask a question, you need to phrase it in the form of a question. Uh, please wait for the microphone. And uh, also, please identify yourself uh, for your question. I saw right here, question right here. I'm Henry Metzger from the NIH and particularly interested in dual-use research. Uh, I haven't read your book, but I have read a related book, uh, Trapped by the War on Terrorism by Lustig. And one of the topics that uh, in the last chapter he talks about various ways of getting out of the, the, the mind that we're in. And one of the topics that he mentions that uh, Americans seem to be afraid to discuss is the relationship of terrorism to our policy regarding Israel. And I wonder whether this is covered in your book and whether you have some comments about that. It, it, it is not addressed specifically in the book, but there are a number of chapters that talk about the linkages between um, various policies. I think we, we've all alluded to the, you know, the, the problem of, of a foreign military presence in foreign lands that is that you know it can be can be a motivating factor from places from you know from distance from Sri Lanka or Chechnya to to the Palestinian territories or now Iraq and Afghanistan so I think it isn't addressed specifically but I think the broader issue is is relevant and, and we've we've mentioned it uh, already today uh, Bob Pape's work uh, Mia talks about it a little bit in her book Jim Forrest talks about it in his chapter in the book um, there are many different grievances that can be seized upon and used as a narrative to mobilize support, uh, but uh, and, and so it's in there, but in a but in a uh, consistent with other messages. But the question that he raises is just as we learned from Kerry's campaign that as soon as somebody <laughs> uses the word like right. nuisance, uh, yes, he, he, well, <laughs> yeah. gets cut out. Is this an area that you think? Politically, can be discussed in this. I, I, I think it can. I, I hope I'm. I've written about this. I write about it a little bit in the chapter in, in our book. I've written about it in a few other places, where and, and I think Ben Ben got it in his remarks. Is that we have evolved over time, and and you know Rick points out that we've been at this for nine and a half years, um, where uh, things that were simply not acceptable under any circumstance are growing to be a bit more accept, uh, acceptable. I wouldn't say they're conventional quite yet, uh, but at least they're you know. Go ahead. I, I just think that there's no question that uh, we live uh, with regard to that issue, uh, Israel in particular, in a kind of intellectual cloister because a lot of people are scared to say what they really think about it. And, uh, you know, I don't think – I think there's a lot of evidence that our policy towards Israel is a contributing cause to motivate some people to become terrorists. That doesn't mean we have a bad policy towards Israel. I don't think it's perfect, but, you know, you can think that – and think our policy towards Israel is great, but people, you know, are afraid to make that distinction. Uh, but I, I, I do uh, agree with Chris that, the, you know, uh, in recent years, I think the, the intellectual uh, straitjacket that people have felt on that issue has gotten a little better. You know, you got J Street and stuff like that, and I think that, those, that, that does make a difference. I think, I think one of the things, you know, and Ben's exactly right, when I talked about the narrative, people say, well, Ozzy, you're criticizing the narrative. You know, what about this narrative? It's like the narr you want the narrative, our U.S. foreign policy be dictated by what a bunch of terrorists think. No, I'm not suggesting that. What I'm suggesting is that you need to take it into account. So if, if we know that our position vis-a-vis -vis Israel is problematic to some of our partners overseas, then we have to be able to take that into account. 
and, 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 and realize that we might be subjecting ourselves to additional risk. That's all. We just have to be more honest about it. If we know that we're going to conduct Afghanistan operations in Afghanistan and we're going to have civilian casualties, that um, and it's going to you know be a, a, a divisive issue for some people, then we're increasing our risk. So let's just take that into a, uh, into account and let's have a, a counter narrative, or let's do other things that we can do to mitigate mitigate that. That's simply what I think we need to do. Um, I had a question back here, and then I'll get you me in the front. Go ahead. Or were you on this point, Mia? Did you want to? Okay, oh, hold on just one second. Go ahead. Just Go ahead. Jump in. Um, I think it's important to. Oh, identify yourself. Oh, sorry. Hi. I'm, I'm Mia Bloom from Penn State University, International Center for the Study of Terrorism. Uh, it's important. Mia Bloom, so I'm allowed to say what I'm about to say. Um, <laughs> I want to underscore something that uh, Professor Nelson mentioned, which I was very excited about your comments. Um, I think the narrative is important, but you hit the point on the head when you said that a lot of these conflicts, whether it's JI or whether it's uh, GEM in Pakistan, these conflicts are local conflicts. And it's not to say that if we resolve the Palestinian issue tomorrow, which would be fantastic for the region, that that's the end of terrorism. I think what it would do is undermine in part some of the narrative, but there are still a lot of other issues. Now, whether or not we have a great deal of flexibility, these are things that have much more to do with U.S. foreign policy and U.S. domestic policy. But as far as terrorism policy is concerned, I think it's important to disaggregate the importance of Israel, because if you ask a Pakistani what's important to him, Kashmir is far more important than Palestine, but he'll talk about Palestine because he has that language and the rhetoric at his disposal. But at the end of the day, I think he's far more interested in the Indian occupation of Kashmir than he is of the occupied territories. Thank you. Okay, back there. He believes in unlimited presidential power, including the right to deprive Americans of their constitutional rights. Isn't the war on terrorism an absolute godsend? <laughs> As one who does not believe in unlimited presidential power, I don't feel empowered to answer that question. Uh, Jim. Take it away, Jim. I think the, the, the question answers itself. <laughs> Thank you for asking it. I think, uh, seriously, though, if you read, uh, what's the, the book, the Washington Post reporter wrote the book about Cheney, uh, Angler? Angler, yeah. Uh, Gelman, Bart Gelman. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I think there's no question that the uh, Bush administration and the Cheney's office in particular was able to do a lot of stuff on those issues that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, and they were happy to use that, uh, you know, as a justification and a reason. I mean, I, I don't uh, I don't say that they didn't mean what they said, but it was certainly helpful to them in that regard. Right, and our colleague uh, Gene Healy wrote a, a book in, about this, as you know, uh, Cult of the Presidency, which talks about that as well as a number of other uh factors over the years that have increased the power of the presidency. Um, I talk about it a little bit in my book as well. Uh, there. And then I'll get you, man. Go ahead. Hi there. I'm Zach Pakin from McGill University. Uh, from what I take so far uh, on uh, presidential history and also from what you guys have said so far uh, is that most of your book is dedicated to fighting non-state organizations such as Al-Qaeda or uh, the Taliban, stuff like that. But you haven't really spoken about state sponsors of terrorism such as Iran, which is equally if not more important. Could you address that for a second? We talk about it in our chapter a bit, that is, Paul Pillar and myself, who talk about the, the relevance of the military instrument in combating terrorism. Um, in the few instances where it might be relevant is when there is a, a key state sponsor. 
The reality, however, is that there rarely is. Uh, and I think that in the case that you cite, I think the, the Iran's role in sponsoring terrorism is much discussed, but is not directly relevant to a lot of the other cases we've already mentioned today. Iran is not a key sponsor of, of Pakistani terrorism or, or of Chechen terrorism or of Sri Lankan terrorism or the various other strains we've talked about that are connected only very loosely in this phony map that was drawn up to connect local grievances together. So I, I think it is appropriate to put on the table uh, whether state sponsorship is instrumental, but I think in many cases it is not. In fact, what really empowers a non-state actor is the fact that they do not have a place where you can direct a retaliation via military means, which is why the law enforcement approach is, or the intelligence approach is more appropriate. Would you? I yeah, I mean I, I mean, I agree that, you know, most states are rational actors. I think Iran is a rational actor. And uh, terrorist groups that they use, state-sponsored terrorist groups, are used to the state's ends. So, uh, you know, Iran is only going to use or influence Hezbollah uh, to, a, to a certain degree. Um, it's only going to use Hezbollah when, it's, when it needs to. That said, Hezbollah is not monolithic either. Um, so we also think, and they think it's not like, you know, Iran picks up the phone and all of a sudden the armies of Hezbollah rise up globally and, and start taking down, you know, the world. It doesn't work that way. I mean, they also, these individual groups, just as any um, uh, transnational groups, they have individual personalities and uh, individual um, objectives as well. So um, um, I saw right here. Yes, ma'am. My name is Li Yang. Um, I just try to make some comparison about domestic issues and foreign policy issues. Level of domestic issues, you have a racial profiling. It's not because of black or brown, maybe they committed more crime, but because they are labeled as a criminal prone. So I just wonder how, how much percentage or something of this sort is really forced labeling as a terrorist. And like uh, Guantanamo Bay, see whether those people are in prison there because they have been robbed by their property, their family resources, and then they label them as the criminals so they can be in prison forever. You want to take, go ahead. I think one way to talk about these types of questions is to recognize that, that profiling is self-defeating. Uh, it, it's it's in the area of national security now, now in terms of domestic police profiling i think it's obviously we talk about people's rights their their equal protection rights and things like that in the security area security internationally uh really what makes us safe is what matters most and particularly in this area profiling fails and it's self and it's self defeating because if you after a given incident select say a list of 14 countries from which you'll treat all people as suspect, uh, you are communicating to all the people in those countries who could be on your side that you don't think they're on your side. And so for, for a small uh, uh, potential security gain in, in giving more attention to people from those countries, you get a, a, a much larger, though widely dispersed, security loss because you lose lots of people who are your likely allies. And so it just you don't have to you don't have to talk about being nice. You don't have to talk about rights. I think that profiling people based on their religion, based on their national uh, origin, or, or or just about anything else, uh, fails as a security measure on on the security merits. 
And you've, t I mean, you've written a whole book on the subject just in terms of identity, which goes beyond racial profiling. That's just one aspect of identity. Sure, and a, and a, and a paper that might be more relevant on, on uh, uh, data mining for counterterrorism purposes. Uh, there's enough distinction among each and every attack, as, as Ozzie Nelson pointed out, even just the, the, the groups that are sponsoring, if you will, some attack here. There's enough difference among them that there is no pattern you can find. And, and looking for patterns in data that will be reflective of uh, terrorism planning or terrorism activity will fail. You'll just get an, a huge number of false positives, as you would if you picked, picked everybody from a given country or everybody from a given religion or appearance. Down here? <clears throat> and then I'll get you, sir. Hi, Samira Daniels. Um, uh, maybe Ozzy can <laughs> answer this. Um, what do you... What is the issue of the fact that it's perhaps in the classified information that the the resolve to some of these issues that you're you know enumerating uh, the, the, what what you see as the prognosis of that because you know what, I could make the argument that it's in this in the uh, information that's classified that that should be before the public w that can really be, you know, form the evidentiary uh, basis for resolve of these issues. So, so the question is getting to the point about empowering the public to deal with these problems. They're, they're limited in their ability because a lot of information is shielded from public view, from classification. Um, you, you also – yeah. This is something I've thought about a lot, though I haven't written about a lot because, because I don't yet feel like I know enough. But uh, but secrecy and classification is a, a sort of masterful well poisoning for the for the discussion about terrorism. It says, "I can't I can't tell you what I know, but you need to be afraid of it, and you need to accept my solution." Um, and I, you know, I'm not I'm not there yet to 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 describe every way that that's that that you that you shouldn't use secrecy because there is a small realm where you need secrecy. Uh, but I really, really resist secrecy, and, I, and what I do when I think about uh, an assertion of secrecy is I take it as a fact, not in evidence. Someone says, I can't tell you this. I say, well, then it's not proven. And that's not, that's not appropriate for every conversation, but I, I take secrecy as a confession that they don't have anything. Rick, I, think, I think Max Weber said that secrecy is the fighting posture of bureaucracy. I might be off slightly on that. And, um, you know, we have a problem in all national security realms where much of the information we have about threats comes from people who are very connected to fighting that threat. So there's a little bit of a, a principal agent problem there, as the economists would say, and, uh, and secrecy is a big part of that. And, and secrecy, there's no question. There's um, uh, lots of people who do more work on, on this than us these days, but uh, secrecy is abused, and there, there ought to be less classification of uh, documents so that we can have better public discussion about these issues. Down here, and then I'll get some folks in the back. Um, of all these terrorists uh, we have, which should be tried as uh, criminals in <laughs> civilian court? Which should be tried as uh, in a military tribunal court as illegal combatants? And which should be held as prisoners of war? And if you hold any as prisoners of war, when do you uh, let the them go? Over? Right. Good question. Rick, can you take that one? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, personally, I, I believe that we, we, we 
prosecute these individuals that you know are, that are in the United States, and we or prosecute them. Hopefully, we get host nation countries which they belong to prosecute them. If they're not going to prosecute them, we get them extradited to the United States, and we prosecute them in the United States. We have a history of being very successful in our prosecutions of, of terrorists, um, and it's important for us to get that resolution. Go out to Colorado. There is a bunch of really bad terrorists locked up for a very, very long time that we don't talk about. What we end up talking about, which feeds into this narrative, is all the ones that we that sat, like, you know, uh, Padilla, who sat in South Carolina for unending for years, and the individuals down in Guantanamo Bay. There's no doubt there are some very bad individuals in Guantanamo Bay. But we put ourselves in this conundrum. Now we don't know what to do with them. What I'd like to see happen to solve the Guantanamo Bay issue is us to make a decision on what we're going to do and just move forward on it. If we're going to have military tribunals at this point for the Guantanamo Bay, then let's do it. It didn't take us this long to stand up tribunals and execute them for World War II. It shouldn't take us this long to do them for for this war. So uh, ultimately, in a perfect world, I'd like to see them all in a courtroom. But to clean up Guantanamo, we may have to utilize military tribunals. But open any detention is not an acceptable solution. Jim, go ahead. If I may on that, I'm not going to answer that question because the, the answers are too difficult. My colleague David, <laughs> my colleague David Ritkers has 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 worked on this uh, extensively, and he's got a lot of good material out there. But I just because I'm so interested in it, want to highlight the the strategic uh, elements of to, that go into that is just the awareness of the fact that that treating someone as a criminal or treating someone as a wicked, scary terrorist communicates things back to the groups that sent them back to others around the world. Uh, and I'm, I'm so interested by the example of, of the IRA where Margaret Thatcher uh, chose to treat IRA terrorists as criminals. And, and one, of the major, uh, one of the major beefs that they had that caused the hunger strike, that, the, the name of which is eluding me right now, was whether they would be allowed to wear their own uh, uniforms or whether they would be put in prison uniforms. And the insistence on prison uniforms and treatment as prisoners uh, signaled very important things to other potential terrorists. And I think that's a model uh, that, that, you know, f- coming from Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, that we might want to emulate, that we don't help terrorists exalt themselves by giving them military tribunals. All other things being equal, I would push away from military tribunals for that reason. Uh, in the back, uh, John first, and then I'll get David. <clears throat> Thank you. I'm John Utley with the American Conservative uh, two points. First, uh, you all in your talks have not really brought up the question of religious fanaticism on not just the Muslims on our side. And uh, in regard to the first question, reference Israel, much of the uh, resistance to the policies uh, is heavily Jew- American Jewish. And I'd add our magazine, uh, publisher is Jewish, antiwar.com, which is the main website. Uh, is direct the director editor is Jewish. Uh, Sora, uh, I might add, a Rabbi uh, Lerner was just beaten up. His his runs Tikkun, is a large magazine, uh, was attacked in his home now by fanatics uh, uh, Israeli, and Yitzhak Rabin, of course, was murdered by by Israeli fanatics. So. You, you haven't really, and I, I might add, I just spent the weekend at a big meeting of American religious right, uh, not fanatics, but the strong religious right Baptist uh, groups in America who are terrorized by terrorism. They get talks constantly that the terrorists out to establish Sharia law in America and the most preposterous things. 
and most of them know very <laughs> set little. Set straight, John, this weekend? Did you set them straight on that? Well, We're uh, not going <laughs> to have burkas here in the no. United States, 300 million Americans. Well, they are being told that by... It's not around the corner, right? Help us out with that. A, a main columnist for the Washington Times is constantly hopping That's, on that. Yes, I know. And I see an alliance there of the religious right with the neocons. They're very anxious to start another war with Iran this time, and, and so on. So uh, just adding that our people are also affected by this, and uh, you, you don't, haven't really addressed uh, well, uh, the, the religious uh, uh, fanaticism. What, what, excuse me, when you say terrorists do this to get fame or... or right, you're, you're right. Status, we don't... Et we haven't addressed it here today, but in two, at least two of the chapters in the book, in Mia's chapter and Jim Forrest's chapter, James Forrest's chapter. Does Mia want to... Do you want to, you want to talk about this? No, she doesn't. All right, well, I was just going to say that two chapters in the book talk about the many different uh, factors. We, 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 one of the very first meetings we had, Jim alluded to it, I think, we had a meeting in Chicago with uh, 40 or almost 40 different terrorism experts, and the, and the, the group that I led was, was initially called uh, Root Causes of Terrorism. Well, after a day of talking about that, we decided you don't talk about root causes of terrorism, you talk about risk factors of terrorism. If you think about root causes then you solve the root cause by addressing the root cause, and terrorism goes away. So if you believe that the root cause of terrorism is religious fanaticism, and you somehow, somehow, cure religious fanaticism, you've, that's not how it works, because there are many, many people who perceive of themselves as religious fundamentalists, believing in a, in a, in a, in a literal interpretation, for example, of the Bible, or the Quran, or what have you, who do not become terrorists, right? So you need to have a level of sophistication and talking about the factors that can, but most often do not, contribute to terrorism. So the question is, is you know, is asking not why are so many people radicalized, but why do so few of those who are radicalized adopt terrorism? Is that a fair encapsulation of our discussion? And I think it's important. You remember that discussion, right? That was in the very first day, Paul and you're right, yeah. I think part of what's important to understand is the dynamic that many of the people who are drawn to these extremist ideologies with regard to the Islamic side, because I know the Islamic side better than I would know the Christian fundamentalist side, are people who themselves are not well-versed in the Quran and the Hadith, and the, they don't themselves know very much. And so actually what happens is whether they're converts like Jihad Jain or Jihad Jamie, or they are people who are almost like a clean slate, they are able to be convinced by a handful of radical clerics that, in fact, yes, this is what Muhammad said. When, you know, people who are very well educated in the Islamic text, and this is going to be true, I think, for a Christian text as well, if you would talk to the radical right and they say, yes, it's uh, Jesus' plan to kill abortion doctors because we're going to be saving lives, I really don't think you'll find that in the New Testament. By the same extension, <laughs> you know, the same thing is true with Islam that many of the most extreme and crazy ideas that are proliferated are by sheikhs that are not well-known, people who are fringe. Bin Laden himself is not a sheikh. He's not an ayatollah. He doesn't have religious, he doesn't have the bona fides to make the fatwas that he's making. And yet, what you have is the most educated Muslims would be able to finish the sentence. So when he says, well, in Surat al-Baqarah, it says, yes, but the second part of the sentence said, <laughs> Muhammad always preferred peace. And so that's where you, you have in some of the de-radicalization programs, whether it's in Yemen, um, the Committee on Dialogue, whether it's in Saudi Arabia, they have 
have religious scholars there that say, okay, you know what? If you can convince me, I will, you know, convert to your ideology. However, let's have a conversation rooted in the Quran, rooted in the, in the Hadith, and in the Sunnah of the Prophet. And, in fact, they usually lose out because they really, they don't know very much. And I would say that when you're talking to the religious fundamentalists, keep in mind that they may know a sliver they may know what they're told, but if they actually go to the original text, they're going to be very surprised to see that the text doesn't really confirm uh, many of these extreme ideas that have been proliferated. Jim, you wanted to... Uh, your, your, your question is a, is a fascinating one to me because it brings me to the question of, of how people think about problems like this. And there are just a, such a welter of different uh, mental errors that we make individually and collectively. I recall uh, uh, that, that President Bush ascribed huge goals to terrorists based on the huge effects of what they did in New York City. How do you get from the consequences of what happened to what they meant to do? And we learn now from years of study that there might be a wide difference between what people actually want to achieve and what, what the, the results of their particular acts I was I appreciated Ozzy's commentary on the DOD shortly after 911, um, describing the enemy it preferred rather than the, the enemy there was. The map, right. That's it's so much like looking under the lamp post for your keys because the light is better there. <laughs> we have, and I think in the specifically in the area you're, you're referring to, we have lots of folks, and and lots of folks do this, uh, exercising powerful confirmation bias. Because they believe in a, in a war between cultures, they go looking for things that talk about the war between cultures. How do you bring people out of those modalities of thought and get them to step back and think it through? Uh, I don't know. That's, the, that's a really interesting problem that, that inhabits the area of terrorism as well as so many other areas of public policy where people's mental habits are so deeply ingrained that you can't bring them out by shaking their lapels or hitting them with a book or any other thing you might try. Well, here's a question on this extremist issue. When was the last time a terrorist used an aircraft to kill an American citizen in this country? This is a trick question, I'm presuming. <laughs> well, exactly. Joseph Stack. Um, he was a right-wing extremist. He was anti-government. Um, <laughs> we do not advocate flying buildings into, into federal buildings, just for the record. But, but okay, but, he, but my issue with extremism, certainly right now we have to be very concerned about violent Islamic extremism, no doubt. But there are other forms of extremists out there that we have faced for, for, for long periods of time, and particularly with everything going on with the economic crisis and all these other things underway in the United States. Um, issues such as that, and Joseph Stack, two federal employees died. If he was a 20-year Arab or Muslim male, we'd still be talking about this. We'd still be having hearings, and we're not. So just keep that in the, in the back of your mind. Uh, Dave, in the back. David. And then I'll get you, sir. David Rutgers, Cato Institute. Uh, my question is for Mr. Nelson. As someone who's been inside the intelligence community, uh, kind of want to ask you about bureaucratic overreach uh, in, in two parts. First, uh, we created the Department of Homeland Security uh, following 9-11, uh, and uh, just want to ask you if, if it was bureaucratic overreach to, to create uh, a separate track within the government that wasn't connected to uh, inside the, the traditional law enforcement paradigm for prosecuting terrorists, and, and has that produced bad intelligence, such as the report that you mentioned, basically labeling about half the country and returning veterans as potential threats to national security? And second, now that we've uh, followed the 9-11 Commission recommendation and taken what was formerly the Homeland Security Council and put that under the auspices of the National Security Council, uh, 
do, what role should uh, the Department of Homeland Security play, if any, besides spreading lots and lots of money around, and, uh, and how can that be constructive within the intelligence community? You want this in 10 words or less? Or? <laughs> um, I mean, it's an extraordinarily complex question. I mean, here's, here's how I look at this. People ask that actually quite frequently. Um, when was the last time we disestablished a major department in the United States government? So the point is DHS and DNI are here to stay. So we have to figure out how to make them work. Um, are they working as well? Um, so whether they were, should be here or not is irrelevant. They're here. Uh, are they working as well as they should? No. For departments that have been in, uh, in uh, operation for five years, five years, I think they're doing okay. Um, but they're not where they need to be. As far as um, – and, and it will come with time. As far as the um, – the DHS issue and the legal issue, uh, that's a far more complicated issue that I could, I could possibly give service to in this forum. <laughs> Sorry. In the interest of uh, simulating debate, I will say that uh, I think departments and agencies can be shut down, and I hold out great hope that many will be, uh, starting with DHS and DN. Actually, uh, and, and now, I'm, now I'm definitely going to weigh in on this. Uh, this week at uh, National Journal, the question is, should the DNI be disbanded? So in other words, no, don't replace uh, Denny Blair. Just, just give up. Uh, and I, I wasn't going to weigh in on that, and now I think I'm going to uh, uh, get into that discussion and say, while we're at it, let's get rid Let's get rid of DNI and DHS. Well, I think well, – let me use this as an opportunity. This will touch on your issue a little bit. I do think that, the, the, that we made a mistake when we did give um, – we did not give DNI the authority to appoint the lead intelligence official in the embassies overseas. Um, we totally neutered DNI when we did that, and, you know, and it was only a matter of time before Blair resigned. Um, so you're right. If we are going to have a DNI, let's make it effective. Um, and one of the ways you can do that is not to you know, mortgage out its power. But uh, – Counterpoint? No, no, I, I think that's. I'll just say that, you know, I said a bunch of mean things about the Bush administration. I will say one thing the Bush administration did was not, they did not want to create the Department of Homeland Security until they were beaten over the head by Joe Lieberman and uh, some other people running for president back then uh, and pressured into doing it. So uh, credit where credit's due. And they, they did fold, which was. Yeah, well, the credit, credit would be to say no, to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, they, and, were, you know. they were good for a minute. Yeah, <laughs> they were good for a minute. Uh, so you, had, you, you still have a question, sir, there? Yeah. And this will be, I guess this will be our last question. Yeah. Yeah. Ken Dante, um, I've worked as a therapist, and I guess my interest is in religion and violence. And just to go back into the um, the whole dialogue that we were having, uh, not all terrorism is really rational. I mean, some of it is apocalyptic. And someone that's playing off an apocalyptic score is playing out uh, a drama on another level. It's not necessarily strategic in the way we think of strategy. And I don't know that rationality is always the counteractive to that. So I just wanted to put that out and see if you would uh, talk a little can bit you, about that. Can you address that, Jim? Because I do think when we talk about the strategic logic of terrorism, how much do we have to take into account that some of it just is a strategic? There is no strategy or, or, or not. I think there are, there are many different strategies at play, and I was, I was so interested. I mentioned Max Abrams, and he has a good article in part because it's short. Uh, what, do, uh, what do terrorists really want, if I recall correctly the title of it, uh, where he goes into – what they're seeking after you can you can divide it's 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 always inaccurate to to divide these things into buckets which are actually on a continuum but there are probably a small number of geopolitically motivated uh, strategic thinkers 
there are many who are angry about specific grievances and and want to join in a in a in an effort to to expel occupiers. For example, this is Robert Pape's theory, uh, where he's done most of his work. And Max Abrams is so, is so interesting because a lot of people are looking for social benefits. Uh, their lives look pretty bad, and they don't like what the U.S. is doing. This is articu- as articulate as as they are to themselves. As I'm being right now. My life looks pretty bad. I don't like what the U.S. is doing. I can be part of something really exciting if I join this. That's rational. It may not be very factual. It may not be uh, good economics on their own part. It may not lead to their well-being. But that's, that's the rationality of it. It's just that they're motivated by becoming part of something that's important. And we don't want to help them tell that story by making their leaders important to them or making their leaders important to us and so on and so forth. I think, I think it's the way to do counterterrorism is pursue it aggressively. And none, none of what I say denies the importance of pressuring terrorist cells all the time. I talk so much about alternatives that, that I, I, should, I should mention the importance of always pressuring terrorist cells while we do these other things. But we should pressure them seriously while on the surface and in public communications be very, very cool and phlegmatic. So we don't tell that story that allows them to feed into, into, into uh, the, the terrorist strategy. I, I was mistaken. There is one more question uh, because the chairman emeritus always get the last word. But defi- let me just say on this last point, definitionally, I do think it, it, it is important to keep the definition of terrorism in mind. Okay, It is politically motivated violence as distinct from violence for violence sake. And I, I mean, we, we define terrorism for a reason, and I think that may address part of what your question was in terms of disaggregating violence that is purely irrational from other forms of violence. Magical. Uh, Bill, go ahead. Bill has the last word. Bill Scannon, Cato. Uh, what are the lessons to be learned from the fact that most terrorist incidents are not against American targets? and that some of the American attacks are by other Americans have nothing to do with international militant Muslim. Well, Rick, do you want to answer that question about domestic, the, the domestic threat? Because you just wrote a paper on this subject, right? But, but I'll, let me address the we've all, in terms of the victims of terrorist violence, okay, especially since 9-11, okay, the vast majority have not been Americans. The attacks have, thankfully, not happened here in the United States, but obviously have happened elsewhere, which keeps terrorism as a salient you know, factor in many, many other societies, communities, not just in the United States. Um, but I think in terms of undermining the narrative, it's so important to focus on the victims of this violence. So if you say you're serving some higher purpose, which is trying to get the United States to change its policies, if that's what you say your purpose in terrorism is, but the harm comes to people who are not American or have no connection whatsoever to anything associated with the United States, the irrationality of terrorism reveals itself. And, not surprisingly, the appeal of terrorism and of the groups that use terrorism is undermined by a focus on the victims, by just the complete disconnect between what they say they are accomplishing by their violence and what actually happened, which is just violence and chaos. So I think it's important to draw attention to the many attacks since 9-11 that haven't had anything whatsoever to do with the United States. I would just say that it demonstrates a point that Mia made before, which is that most terrorism is born of local 
conflicts and right. local concerns and that it's a mistake to view it as a global phenomenon that concerns us. And that's sort of a, you know, a self-centered view of the world. I mean, there's a lot of different political conflicts in the world that produce terrorism, and we're certainly involved in a few of them, but uh, most of them we're not. You want to anything? Okay. All right. Well, I want to thank uh, I want to thank Rick. I want to thank my co-authors, co-editors of this book. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. Um, we should have a reception uh, up in the Winter Garden, and please join us upstairs. Thank you very much. <laughs>